Section 47 of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 10. England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 47. Benjamin Disraeli, 1804 to 1881, by L. F. Jennings. Benjamin Disraeli, Earl of Beaconsfield, was born in 1804. Before he was 22 years of age, he had become well known as a writer, but his ambition was political, and he succeeded in entering Parliament. He manifested such talent and ability that he was made Chancellor of the Exchequer and, in 1868, Premier. He soon lost this office, but returned to power in 1874, and for four years his strong will skilfully guided the foreign policy of Great Britain. In 1881 he died. Disraeli was a thoroughgoing imperialist, the champion of the aristocracy. Nevertheless, in practice he was liberal, and went so far as to urge establishing the Church of Rome in Ireland, besides advocating several almost revolutionary reforms in England. He was a brilliant orator, always clear and dignified, and witty withal. The Editor There is no more difficult body of men to lead in the world than those who constitute the House of Commons, and when it has fallen to Mr. Disraeli's lot to lead them, he has done it with incomparable tact. He never scolds or lectures them, as if they were a pack of naughty children who ought to be whipped and sent to bed. This is Mr. Gladstone's method of managing his fellow-members, and it partly accounts for the success with which he turns a majority for him into a majority against him. Mr. Disraeli, on the other hand, deals patiently with the House, humours it in its fits of petulance or anger, and often recalls it to a sense of its duty by a few words of good-humoured remonstrance. Once, when he had suffered a great defeat, and the House was wild with excitement, and everybody looked to him for a violent speech, he rose calmly and said, I think the best thing is always to put a good face upon a disagreeable state of affairs, and take that sensible view which may be taken even of the most distressing and adverse occurrences if you have a command over your temper and your head. In the same way, his trenchant replies to attacks on himself or his party are always free from malevolence, while at the same time they pierce the tenderest points of his antagonists. He fastens some epithet upon a man which sticks to him for the remainder of his life. Mr. Horsman will always be the superior person of the House of Commons. No one who sees Mr. Berefer's hope rise to make a speech will forget his Batavian grace. Lord Salisbury will be remembered for his power of spontaneous aversion. Mr. Lowe is the inspired schoolboy. When Mr. Gladstone professed to disestablish the Irish Church, after supporting the cause of church and state all his life, Mr. Disraeli had the opportunity of pointing out a real case of inconsistency, and he did not fail to use it. He taunted the liberal leader with endeavouring to reverse the solemn muniments of the nation at eight days' notice, and with having come forward like a thief in the night to make the enormous sacrifice of all the convictions of his life. His sketch of the eternal Irish difficulty is worth reading, even though it suffers much through being detached from a great speech. I never liked the emigration from Ireland. I have deplored it. 
I know that the finest elements of political power are men, and therefore I have not sympathised with the political economists who would substitute entirely for men animals of a lower organisation. I am not conscious that I have ever been deficient in sympathy for the Irish people. They have engaging qualities which I think every man who has any heart must respect. But I must say, nothing surprises me more than the general conduct of the Irish people on the subject of sentimental grievances. They are brave, lively, very imaginative, and therefore very sanguine. But going about the world announcing that they are a conquered race, they do appear to me the most extraordinary people in the universe. Every one of us, nations and individuals, is said to have a skeleton in the house. I hope I have not. If I had, I would turn the key upon him. But why do they go about ostentatiously declaring themselves to be a conquered race? If they really were a conquered race, they are not the people who ought to announce it. It is the conquerors from whom we should learn the fact. For it is not the conquered who go about the world and announce their shame and humiliation. Cheers! But I entirely deny that the Irish are a conquered race. I deny that they are more a conquered race than the people of any other nation. Therefore, I cannot see that there is any real ground for the doleful tone in which they complain that they are the most disgraced of men, and make that the foundation for the most unreasonable requests. Ireland is not one whit more conquered than England. They are always telling us that the Normans conquered Ireland. Well, I have heard. The Normans conquered England, too. Laughter. And the only difference between the two conquests is that while the conquest of Ireland was only partial, that of England was complete. Renewed laughter. Then they tell us that a long time ago there was that dreadful conquest by Cromwell, when Cromwell not only conquered but plundered the people. But Cromwell conquered England. Great laughter. He conquered the House of Commons. Renewed laughter. He ordered that bauble to be taken away, in consequence of which an honourable member, I believe, of very advanced liberal opinions, the other night proposed that we should raise a statue to his memory. Laughter cheers. Well, sir, then we are told that the Dutch conquered Ireland. But unfortunately they conquered England, too. They marched from Devonshire to London through the midst of a grumbling population. But the Irish fought like gentlemen for their sovereign, and there was no disgrace in the Battle of the Boyne, nor does any shame attach the conduct of those who were defeated. Hear, hear! I wish I could say as much for the conduct of the English leaders at that time. Hear, hear! Therefore, the story of the Irish coming forward on all occasions to say that they are a conquered race, and in consequence of their being a conquered race, to wish to destroy the English institutions, is the most monstrous thing I have ever heard of. Laughter. Lightness and deity often appear in Mr. Disraeli's speeches when all things seem to be going against him. It is his courage and unfailing good humour which make him many personal friends, even among his bitter political foes. If a man is doomed to be beaten, it is well to see him taking his punishment with a serene countenance and a cheerful air. Throughout the long and stormy period during which Mr. Disraeli was compelled to remain in the cold shade of opposition, he never betrayed signs of a failing heart. The determined and the persevering, as he says in Lothair, need never despair of gaining their object in this world, and this principle is the keynote to his own life. 
He allied himself very early with a declining party, and he has remained steadfast to it through almost unexampled vicissitudes. There was a grudge against it in the minds of the people, and he never had a chance of taking up a popular question. All the fruit on the tree fell to the Liberals. Nothing would have been more natural according to the ordinary behaviour of men than for Mr. Disraeli to have broken down during his long and arduous struggle against a victorious party. He had sat for fifteen years in Parliament before the smallest prospect appeared of his enjoying the solace of office. His party was scattered, demoralised and cast down. It had no policy before it. Its former long lease of power had rendered the people tired of it, and it had fallen out of accord with the spirit of the age. Younger men and younger ideas were needed in it. Mr. Disraeli was abundantly able to supply ideas, but the very sound of the words change or progress scared the country party. They distrusted the unknown man who was at their head in the lower house. He was much too clever for them. He had a head full of ideas. That was decidedly un-English. He had written in newspapers and could not tell the weight of a bullock by pinching it in the rear. Nothing much worse could be said of a man. The old squires looked askance at the young man with a Hebrew type of face, who suddenly appeared among them. He had no land and no money, no family and no titled kinsfolk. To move a stubborn, inert mass, such as the Tory party then was, might have defied the strength of twenty men. The task fell to the adventurer, and he had to address himself to it while the party was in deep adversity. The lot of a leader in opposition is, at the best, never an enviable one. His followers are eager for office, and if he cannot bring them to the desired haven, they reproach him for his want of capacity and enterprise. If he makes a dash at power and fails, they accuse him of foolhardiness and stupidity. Anybody, they will say, might have seen that failure was inevitable, though they may all the time have been inciting him to make the attempt. If he goes fast, he is hot-brained. If he is slow, he is faint-hearted. Mr. Disraeli tried hard for years to bring his party out of the Slav despond, and was resisted chiefly by that party itself. It was not until 1852 that he was first called to office as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Twice afterwards he was compelled to take the same post, with a minority at his back. At length still greater responsibilities were pressed upon him. In the early part of 1868, Lord Derby, under whom Mr. Disraeli had so often served, found his health rapidly declining. He retired from office, and Mr. Disraeli received the commands of the Queen to form a cabinet. When he went down to the House of Commons on the night of March 5, 1868, everybody expected a memorable speech. The House was crowded, and the new Premier was vehemently cheered as he passed to Westminster Hall. In the House itself, he was received with equal warmth. The gallows were filled with people eager to hear the great speech. But Mr. Disraeli does not care to surprise people, at least not in the way they expect. He delivered a short and modest address, and instantly applied himself to the practical work of the House, work which few Prime Ministers have ever managed so well. The interest felt by the public in his accession to power was not unnatural. Since Mr. Disraeli had entered Parliament more than thirty years before, 
Only five men had succeeded in climbing before him to the chief place in the country. Peel, Abdeen, Russell, Palmerston, and Derby. He had beaten his rival Gladstone in the race. Many great men had come and gone during those thirty years, and had missed the chief mark. Sir George Cornwall Lewis, Sir James Graham, Arthur Buller, the Duke of Newcastle, were men of great influence and abilities. But the unknown member whose faith was that all things in his life will fall to those who wait and persevere, achieved the distinction which they failed to reach. He had fought out his struggle with a grand courage which would alone render him a man memorable in history. He set himself to accomplish his purpose, not in a feverish or impulsive spirit, but with a heroic patience, an indomitable endurance, and a splendid self-reliance which enabled him to face all antagonists, to rise again and again from repeated reverses and blows, to mock at all difficulties, and finally to vanquish every obstacle which was thrust in his path. He had no intimate friends, outside a very small circle of men with whom he has been acting for years. He began as a solitary man in the wastes of London, with the chances of success incalculably against him. He sought no help from outside. He paid court to no man, and what must be the strangest thing of all to aspiring politicians, to no newspaper. Social prejudices stood in front of him like a wall of iron. Not the least of those prejudices was that which related to the race from which he sprang. His family traced its descent from the pure Sephardim stock. They were Hebrews of the Hebrews. For two generations, at least, they had been Christians, but still the favourite taunt levelled amidst Mr. Disraeli was founded on his Jewish origin. These reproaches, as usual, he met with defiance. So far from repudiating his race, he has always gloried in it. He fought its battles in the House of Commons, and to him fell the honour of completing the removal of Jewish disabilities. He succeeded in gaining for Jews the right to sit in the House of Commons, and he has done more to break down the unjust prejudice against them than any man of his generation. He has made people at last understand that they do not insult him by calling him a Jew, they only pay him a compliment. End of section 47. This recording is in the public domain.